really my music career and my faith are two different things. I never wanted to be a music Christian. My goal was to be a Christian in my daily life, but I also wanted to make great records. I mean, that, that was my occupation. And I, I just feel like my belief in what God would want us to do comes out through the songs. You are listening to the Christian Music Archive podcast, part of the new release today podcast network. I'm your host, Dave Maurer. Each week, I share stories about Christ, community, and music, chatting with musical guests who you will find listed on the pages of the Christian Music Archive. There are thousands of creative men and women who have helped shape the soundtrack of the Christian faith, and we get to hear their stories, learn about how Christ has made a difference in their life, and hopefully along the way, we'll learn how we can be a better part of our community. Hey friend, welcome to episode number 52 of the Christian Music Archive podcast. Can you believe we've been sharing this time together for an entire year? <laughs> for those of you who have been with me throughout this entire past year, thanks for sticking with me and for your continual encouragement. If you've recently discovered these chats, we've got quite a back catalog of episodes for you to check out. And I'm happy to say that things aren't slowing down at all. Next week starts year number two, and we've got a number of interviews already lined up. I'm sure looking forward to sharing these exchanges with you. There have been a couple of other developments with the Christian Music Archive this past year, and I thought I'd just review them real quickly here. About six months ago, we partnered with Mercy, Inc. Now, Mercy is a Christian relief agency working around the world to bring health, training, education, and most importantly, the good news of Jesus to men and women, boys and girls, all over the globe. Each week, I tell you a little bit more about their ministry, but I also wanted to report that together we've donated almost $300 in the past six months. So thank you for partnering with us to help support Mercy, Inc., and finally, I wanted to remind you about our weekly prayer newsletter. In every episode, you hear me mention it at the end of our conversation with the artists, asking my guests how we can pray for them that week. I thought I'd share just a couple of short emails that I've received from artists about our prayer team. Gene Watson says, I find this so encouraging just to know that people are out there thinking about us and praying for us as Christian artists in ministry. This is such a huge blessing. Steve and Annie Chapman write, Thanks so much for inviting us to send specific prayer requests. It is a most encouraging offer. Linda Randall wrote, I am humbled by your request, and thank you so much for thinking of me and my ministry and for keeping us in prayer. Thanks again for this incredible prayer support. It means so very much. These are just three quotes from the many I get each week. And if you are not already part of the prayer team, I invite you to head over to the website. And at the bottom of every page is a sign-up form where you can register your email address. And then each Saturday, I'll be sending you a newsletter with seven people that we will be praying for that week. So for all of the stuff we're doing, head over to christianmusicarchive.com. You can read about Mercy, Inc., at christianmusicarchive.com. You can sign up to be on the prayer team at christianmusicarchive.com. Do you see a trend? <laughs> you can read about your favorite artists or discover new-to-you musicians from the past 60-plus years at christianmusicarchive.com. Oh yeah, and you can also drop me an email at christianmusicarchive.com. Anyway, 
Thanks for celebrating with me as I celebrate Christian Music Archive podcast's first birthday. And this week, we have a really special interview with Chris Christian. Chris is responsible for a number of groundbreaking historical events in the Christian music industry, so you'll definitely want to stick around for this interview. But for now, thanks for helping us celebrate our one-year birthday. I truly couldn't do this without you. My goal for the Christian Music Archive has always been to document the men and women responsible for the musical soundtrack of our faith. The Christian music industry is notorious for focusing on the latest and hottest trend and neglecting the great music of our past. So I decided to do something about it. And I created this website and this podcast to help remember what God has done musically in our history. But I also want to make sure that this endeavor is making a difference for eternity, that people's lives are changed because of the work I'm doing. Whether through opportunities to support the humanitarian work of Mercy Inc., or a chance for people to be encouraged in their faith, I want the work of the Christian Music Archive to make a difference. Do you feel the same way? Do you appreciate these conversations with musicians? If so, I'm looking for 25 like-minded people who would be willing to sponsor this project at $10 per month. Would you partner with me in celebrating what God has done in our musical past? It sure would mean a lot to me if you would head over to patreon.com slash ccmexchange and become a supporter today. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash ccmexchange. Thanks for your support and thanks for your encouragement. Chris Christian is a substantial name in the Christian music industry. He helped launch the fledgling Christian music industry by signing artists like Dogwood, Whiteheart, and Amy Grant. He is also responsible for Home Sweet Home Records, one of the early industry leaders in contemporary Christian music. His impact on the Christian industry goes beyond records. It goes to songwriting, producing, and oh, there's just so much more. And he also credits his entire career to his praying grandmother. Well, Chris, I have to tell you, when you agreed to this podcast, I immediately was excited, and then I got really nervous because I realized how much career of yours we had to squeeze into an hour. And then you sent me your book, and I read a little bit more, and I thought, okay, we've got about 12 hours of uh, conversation here. Yeah, we're we're working on an eight-part docu-series, and it's even hard to squeeze it into those eight hours, so... (laughs) Well, you have had quite the career. I mean, you've been, um, and, and people who are familiar with old school Christian music will know you as a performer, but they'll also know you as the uh, owner of Home Sweet Home Records, which actually is an outshoot of Home Sweet Home Publishing and Home Sweet Home Jingles, I found out. That's where it started. Yeah, way back. So you've done a lot of stuff. You're a sports team owner now, and oh my gosh, my list thing here goes on and on and on. So I, I thought, if you wouldn't mind, we could just take a start by taking a look at maybe three or four highlights, as far as I can think of, and maybe get you to respond to some of those. The first one would be signing a, a slightly unknown person named Amy Grant to her first publishing deal. Uh, and recording deal. And okay, publishing and record. Yeah, I grew up in Abilene, Texas, um, and 
I don't know how much you want to get back into growing up and how it affected where I am now. But Yeah, definitely, because we want to talk about the community part of how you got where you are. So Maybe, Why don't we start there? Because then it makes the Amy Grant thing make a lot of sense. Okay. If you just start with Amy Grant, it, you have to kind of go back to... Sure. So so let's start growing up. Why don't we just start with yeah, that. Start growing up. That's fine. I'm telling you to grow up. That's not a good thing to tell a guest. <laughs> I get told that quite a bit. <laughs> I grew up in Abilene, Texas, uh, where basically everybody, most everybody there is a rancher, banker, insurance, or farmer, something like that, okay. West Texas. But I always loved music. Uh, and, you know, I found a note that my mother wrote, my grandmother, uh, in, in doing the book that I did, I was looking through all kinds of letters just to kind of refresh my memory. And this was, it just blew me away. There was this note that says, little Chris, we played trucks for about five or 10 seconds. He didn't want to do that. So we played airplanes. He didn't want to do that. So we did this and we did that. And then all of a sudden we started uh, doing kazoos and beating pans and doing music. And we've been doing it for the last hour and a half. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so I looked at the date and the date would have put me at one and a half years old. Oh, wow. So this was something from the beginning. Music was in your bones. Yeah, and actually my dad used to tell everybody that music's just in his bones, you know, and it, I just came with this love and and I guess some kind of talent in music. Well, you fast forward to the fourth grade and my teacher, Mrs. Patterson, uh, had a son named Dal Patterson. Now his record was played on the KRBC, the top 40 pop station in Abilene, Texas. Ah. Well, so how cool is that? Yeah. How cool is that? I go to my fourth grade and my teacher's son's got a hit record on the radio. <laughs> and so I went up to Miss Patterson. And I said, would you ask, see if Dal would come play for our class? Oh, wow. Not really thinking that big rock stars don't really come play for fourth grade <laughs> classes that much. <laughs> but she said, I'll ask him. So Dal came about a week later and Dal, he looked kind of like Elvis, his hair back and he had acoustic guitar and he's good looking and and so about halfway through his song that he was playing that I heard on the radio, it just like a light bulb went off. That's what I want to do. And so in the fourth grade, I bought it. I got a ukulele. I started playing. I got a little, another guy in the fourth grade. We started a, a duo, two ukuleles. <laughs> and then uh, we got in trios. And I was in band. So basically the fourth grade, I started training. Mm -hmm. Now I wasn't looking at it as training. I was looking at it as just doing what I love. Yeah writing song. I wrote a song in the fourth grade too. So I, I just started doing music. Well, you fast forward that through college, got in a trio and played around there. And then the, my freshman summer, my dad said, I got a job for you at the bank in Dallas. Cause we, my family was from a banking family. We started, my grandfather started the first state bank. Okay. It's where my dad worked. My mother was the first employee and I just figured I'd get out of college and I'd go to work at the bank. Yeah. You know? And so uh, I came back and he, I hated it. Mm. He knew I did. So the next summer, sophomore summer in college, I said, I'm going to need a job now. And he said, well, rather than work at the bank, uh, you like that music thing. Why don't you go to Nashville and see what that music thing is all about? Wow. And this is sophomore summer. Now, nobody from, nobody from Abilene had done anything, anything. Now, I found out later, Dal Patterson, the fourth grade, it was the only station in the world playing his record. <laughs> He was, he was a local guy yeah. getting airplay on, on a local station. But as far as I was concerned, he was the Beatles. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Nobody, nobody ever done that. Mm. Well, so I go to Nashville and then just, there's a whole story in the book, you know, about how I 
didn't have any success for for two weeks about to leave and one last minute meeting with archie campbell put me back in nashville and that's a whole other story but but here's where everything started happening my grandmother would always pray let little chris go into the world and preach the gospel mm. which is a passage out of the right. bible yeah not, not little chris but, yeah <laughs> uh, well it kind of freaked me out in the church of christ i grew up in you're taught to follow the Bible exactly what it, like mm. it says. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't have instrumental music in our worship service. And the reason I was taught we didn't, that it doesn't say make music melody and make music in your heart. Oh, by the way, bring your guitar. You know, <laughs> so if it doesn't say bring your guitar, you're not supposed to have a guitar. Right. Well, I'm not sure I ever bought into that, but that's what I was taught and grew up. And the harp and the lyre weren't all that kind of interesting instruments. Well, no, here's the thing. Here's the thing on that little David in the harp. That was in the Old Testament, mm. and the Church of Christ believes the Old Testament is kind of a reference guide. <laughs> okay. And the New Testament is it's what we're supposed to go by. So that's how I was taught. Well, about, so she, when she said, when my grandmother prayed, let little Chris go into the world and preach the gospel, I'm freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, internally, I'm yeah. thinking, how do I go into the world? I mean. I can't get to Amarillo, Texas, you know, so am I going to go to heaven if I don't go into the world? Yeah. So it became my prayer, help help me to somehow go into the world and preach the gospel. Well, then when I go to Nashville, I went to Nashville to be in the record business, you know, uh, uh, country, pop, you know, really pop, because that's Nashville was just closer in L.A. But mm. I love pop music, Carpenters and Three Dog Night and all that stuff. And there wasn't a Christian music business. There was a go- there was gospel, which right. was Bill Gaither and quartets, mm-hmm. and there was country, and there was pop, and that's really you were in one of those three. Right. So I didn't go up there to be in any any Christian music because there wasn't such a thing. Yeah. Uh, and so I did a little did whatever I could. Well, Belmont Church of Christ uh, was a very aggressive Church of Christ, and they had a coffee house across the street that. You know, bands could play it and sing their songs about Jesus. Now, they couldn't do it in the church service, uh, but they could go across the street yeah. on a Friday and Saturday night, and that was okay. Okay. And so uh, a lot of Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, Brown, Bannister, myself, a group called Dogwood. I mean, we all went to Belmont Church of Christ, mm-hmm. and, and, and we all love Jesus, and we all like music. Mm-hmm. Well, uh so dog, I, I asked Dogwood, I, I, they were real good. And Pat Boone was a real good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. He was starting a new label called Lamb and Lion. Right. And um, so I called Pat and I said, hey, Pat, this group Dogwood sounds kind of like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, but they're Christian. Mm-hmm. They write Christian lyrics. Yeah. And I said, can I, can I produce a record with them? And he said, well, how much will it cost? And I said, I don't know. I've never <laughs> produced a record, but they're really good and it would be fun. He said, sure. He said, how about 5000 So I said, okay. Mm. So he sent me $5,000 and did the Dogwood album. This is leading to Amy Grant. Right. Because when the album, uh, when the album, uh, it was distributed by Word Records, Lamb and Lion was. Mm-hmm. When Stan Moser, the head of Word, heard the Dogwood album, they had just signed B.J. Thomas as to do a Christian album. Right. And he was—he didn't know who to get to produce it because he can't get Bill Gaither's producer to produce B.J. Thomas. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. B.J. was a huge pop star, huge. And so he heard the Dogwood album, and he said, "Whoever produced that Dogwood album has got to produce B.J." No Thomas. kidding. No so kidding. I get a call 
from Stan Moser. Now it only produced one $5,000 album called Dogwood. <laughs> and I get a call from Stan. He said, would you produce BJ Thomas? And I said, are you okay? <laughs> really? Do you, do you remember what your budget was for the BJ Thomas album? Yeah, it was like 300000 300, or something. Oh, my. So you went from a $5,000 album project to a three hundred grand. That's incredible. Yeah, it, it was a hundred to 200 I mean, I don't know, but it was a lot. Yeah. Um, and so I said, sure. So I did the BJ album. Well, that just all of a sudden went gold. And mm-hmm. now I think it's platinum. Yeah. It was huge. And and it started, it created a whole nother sound for Christian music, which was pop. Yep. It was pop. We Pat Boone and I called it Christian pop because mm. there was no term that we call, call it now. So we call it Christian pop. Yeah. John still really came up with the title contemporary Christian music. Yeah. And he didn't even really come up with a title trying to name it, but he had a chart mm. in, uh, in his magazine called contemporary Christian music chart. Well, that chart just kind of became the name that everybody started calling CCM. Yeah. You know, and that's where it came from. John didn't really try to name it, but it his magazine became what people called it. Right, right. But anyway, so when BJ just exploded, now remember, this is in a day where Imperials were the biggest group. Right, and they were Southern Gospel, gospel at that music. point. Yep. They were selling fifteen to 20,000 records. Mm-hmm. And here's BJ just sells half a million. So they said, we don't know what you're doing up there, exactly what it is, but we're going to give you, we're going to pay for five albums a year for five years. We'll give you $50,000 an album Mm. and go find some more of this, whatever it is, go find some more. Now, remember there's no industry, right? There's no industry. And so then Brown and I were talking about it and I said, Brown, I mean, I got like, $250,000 $250,000 a year to do five albums, which this is in 96. So 76. Yes. Yeah, 76. And that was like a million dollars in today's dollars. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, but the problem is who are we, who are we going to do records on? And so the first one I did was me. <laughs> Cause I said, well, I, I can write Christian lyrics. So I think I'll do one. Yeah. And I love pop music. So I'll put my Christian lyric to pop music. Yeah. Well, I did that. But then he said, you know, Amy at church, she was 16, maybe mm-hmm. 15 at that time. And I said, she's got a few songs about Jesus. And she's singing her Harper's private school she went to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just something she do at home. And little mountain man wants you to come on home. Very simple songs. Yeah. But there wasn't a long line at the door waiting to do Christian records. Right. There was nobody right. at the door, actually. So I said, well, so we met with, I met with Amy and she was believable. I mean, mm. she really, even though her songs were not real complicated lyrically or musically, you just believed her. I mm-hmm. mean, and so I signed her and I called Stan and I said, okay, I got the first artist uh, under our production deal other than me. Mm-hmm. And uh, her name's Amy Grant. And he said, okay. Wow. <laughs> so, so we got in there and Brown, Brown carried a, a heavy load of, in the production. I produced uh, beautiful music. I had a not much of a track record, but I had Dogwood mm-hmm. that had been successful, and I had BJ that was very successful. Brown had never produced an album in his life. Mm-hmm. And so I said, look, I'm going to be the out producer on the first album, and if it's successful, then I'll just hand it over to you, and you can still do it to my production company. Gotcha. You'll be the producer yeah. with Amy. If it is not successful, we'll say, hey, BJ did well, but you can't win them all, <laughs> you know? I would be interested in unpacking just a little bit. You, you're you throwing Brown Bannister's name around, uh, like, I mean, and, and we know him as this hugely successful producer today, but you connected somehow. Wasn't that at Abilene? Yeah, he was my 
we lived together in Abilene, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a house together. We were best friends for four years at college. Was that a chance meeting or was it just you happened to be in the same class or how did you guys get connected? We met on the steps at freshman orientation and just became friends. Hmm. So I think my whole life is a chance is a chance meeting. But <laughs> as I say in the book, I said, and if you believe in coincidences, which I don't, right. Right. I don't believe in coincidences. The other, the other friend next to my, to Brown and I was Mike Blanton. We all wanted to work together. Mm. So Brown, I got Brown to be my engineer and he engineered the BJ Thomas album. Okay. And it's the first album he'd ever engineered in his, in his life. Wow. He had never engineered. He'd never produced anything. He'd never engineered and he engineered it. And it was only the second album that I produced. (laughs) So the chances of the BJ Thomas album being a good album are, pretty small. Except that you had the gifting of the Lord on you and and you had some talents and skills that he'd given you that kind of pushed it in the right direction. Well, you've kind of hit on the core of the whole thing. My whole life, I was on Huckabee and he said, I call you the Forrest Gump of the music business <laughs> because I was just always at the right place at the right time. Yeah. Well, I kind of was always at the right place at the right time. But as someone who wrote a blog or a little uh, thing on the book on Amazon, she said, yes, he was at the right place at the right time, but someone put him there. Yeah. And I love that yeah. because the things that happened to me and the things I did and having Elvis record my song, I'd never met him. And I wrote the song in high school and then signed an Amy when she was 16 and then 30 million plus records. And, and first guy I meet in LA is Robert Kardashian, who gets me a record deal with Neil Bogart and mm-hmm. things that happen that just, you can't work hard enough. Yeah. You can't be smart enough. You can't train enough. These are things God had a plan for my life. Mm-hmm. And if anyone thinks anything different, I'll never agree with them because <laughs> I, I know how insufficient I was yeah. in every area. Uh, but, but God just had a plan. He could have done it with anybody, but I'm just very grateful that I think my grandmother praying, let little Chris go into the world and preach the mm. gospel. When I went to Nashville to just be in the music business, I think God said, why don't we put these two things together? Yeah. You wanted to make records, Chris, so we'll let you make records, but your grandmother really wants, uh, to follow my, uh, word in word in the Bible that says go into the world. So why don't we put your music with lyrics that go into the world and preach the gospel. Yeah. And that was not why I went to Nashville, but that's what happened. And it's just a miracle. It's absolutely miraculous. And there's no way I should have had these opportunities that I got, but uh, I'm very grateful that it was me, but it could have been anybody. Well, you alluded to this in a comment you were just making. Um, you were written a little song in high school and the first song that you have ever written that was recorded by an artist was recorded by Elvis Presley. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> I laugh every time I think about it. Um, I was in a little group that just to make some money, I played guitar at Monument Studios. These gospel groups, quartets would drive up to Monument Studio, get out of the bus at eight in the morning. And Gary Paxton, Tony Brown, Cheryl Nielsen, and a little band, we'd do their gospel album in one day. They'd mix it. And at about eight or nine o'clock at night, they'd make an acetate which is a one-off record you can press from. And they would get in their bus and they would go settled on tour. Well, the, but one of the background singers was Cheryl Nielsen. His name was Sean Nielsen and he played, sang with the Oak Ridge Boys. He was a, a real high tenor in a quartet. Okay. Well, 
he started working with Elvis and he was Elvis's favorite singer. And so he knew my songs. I knew their songs. Tony Brown ended up producing a hundred number one country records. I mean, but Cheryl knew my song. So he called me on a Saturday and said, Hey dude, you're not going to believe this. I was singing gospel songs with Elvis in Memphis at Graceland the other or last night, as they did a lot. And he says, somebody send me some new songs. And so I sang him your song, Love Song of the Year. Now, I had not met Elvis, right? Right. Uh, Cheryl just knew my song. And he said, Elvis started tearing up, and he said, I have to record that song. Wow. And Now, I had not had any song recorded by anybody. I wrote this song in high school. Yeah. Uh, and not met Elvis, not played it for him. And then sure, and then I went to work for Wayne Newton in Vegas uh, in August 73. Mm-hmm. And then December 12, 73, Elvis on the Stack Sessions in Memphis, he recorded my song. And then he called in January and asked me to, he wanted to meet me. He, I'd not met him. He'd not met me. And so I went up at the opening night of the Hilton and went up to the penthouse. And, you know, Elvis walked up and put out his hand and said, hello, Chris, my name is Elvis Presley. <laughs> I said, like what? like he needed an introduction <laughs> well that's that's what i'm thinking but i learned later it was southern manners he never wanted to assume mm. you should know who i am so it was a very humble uh, thing to do yeah. was was to introduce himself now of course everybody knew who he was but he was just a humble sweet guy but then we talked for 10 minutes and then he stood up we have movie stars, dignitaries, governors, the who's who in opening night of Elvis at the Hilton. He stood up, he clapped his hands. He said, everybody be quiet. This is Chris Christian. I heard a song a few months ago that I just fell in love with. A few weeks ago, I just recorded it. Chris has not heard the song. I wanted to play it for him because he was here in Vegas working with Wayne Newton. Wow. And if you wouldn't mind, would y'all mind listening to it as I play it for Chris? Oh, no so kidding. he goes over there, he puts a needle down and plays the whole song three minutes and 23 seconds long. Wow. And then when it's over, everybody just politely clapped. Mm-hmm. And then what blew me out of the water, he leaned over, he put his arm around me and he whispered in my ear. He said, Chris, what did you think about what I did with your song? Hmm. Wow. Now I've had, I've had hundreds, if not a thousand songs recorded since by, you know, a lot of people, not one person has asked me, what did you think about what I did with your song? Except one person. It was Elvis Presley. Wow. And that's quite something. There was another story in your book and I'm forgive me. I forget who it was where you had recorded somebody else's song and you mixed up one word at the end of the song they were just incensed by the fact that you, instead of what was it, instead of looking up, it was looking through or something like that. And, and, and that would be the normal thing for a a writer to say, you've got to do it my way. You got to do it. But here's the artist saying, what did you think? Yeah, Here's the artist saying, were you pleased with what I did with your song is really what he was saying. Now, what, what, what he did not know, it's the only song I'd ever had recorded by anybody else. <laughs> so I didn't have anything to compare it to. Yeah. But from that, from that point on, he would invite me to the Memphigan for movies. He invited me to the recording studio and he invited me to the mall. Wow. Go shopping at two or three in the morning. You know, he was, he was very gracious after that. And from time to time, I would just get these invitations to come hang out with his group. Wow. Wow. 
Well, and you were in the spot there in Las Vegas because you were working with Wayne Newton, and that's quite a story in itself. How did you get hooked up with Wayne? Uh, I got a job at Opryland. We didn't get to how I got back to Nashville. That was meeting mm-hmm. meeting Archie Campbell and and then meeting his son. And then Archie said, would you go back? I was on my way back to work at the bank in Abilene. Mm. And Archie said, hey, I got a house in Brentwood, Tennessee. I need somebody to house sit. Would you mind going and house sitting at my house or something? Anything's better than being I a banker, said, right? I'd love to. Because <laughs> had he not said that, had he not offered that, I would have just gotten in the car the next morning, driven to Abilene, been, probably been at the bank the rest of my mm-hmm. life. Uh, but it was not just having a place to live. But Archie Campbell, I mean, Chad Atkins, Jerry Reed, Glenn, Clark, Glenn Campbell, Roy Clark, this was Archie's group. Mm. You know, he was a big star on Hee Haw, and he brought Chet Atkins to Nashville. So Archie was a big guy, and he asked Chet Atkins to be my mentor. And Chet was just so nice and gracious. He said, come by any time you can. And he never said no to me. Every time I came by, uh, she said, uh, Mr. Atkins, Chris Christian's here. He said, send him up. Wow. He was just incredible and, and because, of, because of Archie asking his friend to mentor mm-hmm. me. But those kind of things, you know, the ch- that chance of me going to Abilene the next morning and going back to Nashville, uh, I sure wouldn't have been in music, but you kind of wonder who else might not be in music <laughs> right. as well. Yeah, because of all of the people you've had influence with. Um, so there's two things that happened that I read out of your book. Now, I have to admit, I skimmed your book because there's a lot in there and I was trying to prepare for today. But there's two things that happened out of Opryland. One was that connection with with Wayne Newton and how you got your gig with Wayne. And that's kind of a fun story. Yeah. Well, so anyway, that, I'm sorry. I kind of got off. No, on that's a, fine. Cause that's part of rabbit tour there with Archie. Yeah, That needs to be there for the story. I was living at Archie Campbell's house when he asked me to house it for him. And I got this phone call and, uh, he said, is Phil Campbell there? Phil Campbell, Archie's son was a banjo player. So that we're opening Opryland for the first season. We need a banjo player in the Dixieland band. Uh, I said, no, he feels not here, but I play banjo. <laughs> he said, well, can you come out tomorrow morning and audition? So I, I just, because I live in an Archie's house and I got that call, I went to Opryland. I got a job as the first banjo player at Opryland. Well, later that summer, uh, they did a big NBC TV show special with Wayne Newton and Tennis Jerry Ford and Petula Clark and a bunch of big stars. And they said, hey, Chris, would you play banjo with Wayne up on the Cumberland Riverboat? I think it was Swanee. Mm. Would you play banjo? And I said, well, I'm not sure I know that song. He said, well, it doesn't matter. We've already recorded the music. All you have to do is sit there and look (laughs) like you're playing on the Cumberland Riverboat. Okay. So, you know, when you shoot a TV show, you shoot for like a minute. Then everybody breaks down for an hour while they set up the next scene in the lights and all that. So Wayne and I spent the whole day together on the Cumberland Riverboat. Mm. At the end of that day, he said, hey, when Opryland's over, why don't you come to Vegas and play in my band? No kidding. And I said, well, for me to go to Vegas and live at the top of the sands and play in Wayne Newton's band, it's like going to Mars. <laughs> I mean, I'm from Abilene, Texas. I haven't seen anything. Yeah. So I'm going from Abilene, Texas, where there's honk- maybe a small honky-tonk somewhere, to, <laughs> which I never went to all the way to the very top entertainer in Vegas. So I go out and sure enough, he hires me. And that's, and so I was his, uh, in his five person personal band 
we had a 50 person orchestra behind us, but mm-hmm. I do doodling banjos with Wayne and he do the fiddle and I do different guitar parts and I play harmonica and we, you know, we did a bunch of duet kind of yeah. things together on stuff. Yeah. Well, and, and you were working at Opryland as a way to kind of pay for living, living in, in Nashville. And there's another important person that you met in Opryland too. That was probably the most important person you've met in your career. Well, my life, <laughs> my wife, you yeah, know, yeah. Shannon. Yeah. I don't think it was that important for my career, but it was really important for my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I met her and I just, you know, I was kind of a date somebody once and if it clicks great, but if it doesn't just, there's no reason to have date two or three, mm-hmm. you know? So I was kind of, my wife told me I, the word was out. I was kind of a date them once and drop them, you know? Yeah. And, but the only reason was I just didn't want to just, I wasn't out there just to date. I was looking for a wife yeah. <laughs> basically yeah. to someone I wanted to spend my life with and, and would be a great uh, support. Just like my mother and my grandmother mm-hmm. had been in, our, in their Christian families. And so uh, after two days, I just knew this is the one I wow. wanted. But she's incredible. So I met her, her her senior in high school summer before she was going to Vanderbilt the next, you know, September in the fall. And she only worked at Opryland because her dad said, you got to get a job, Shannon. You know, she didn't need any money, but she said, well, if I got to work, I want to get a tan. So I want to get a job outside <laughs> so I can get a tan when I'm working. And that's why she was working there. Mm. Well, now... It's interesting for me because you talked earlier about the fact that this story of yours, your life story, could have happened to anybody, but it's because God had you placed in specific places at specific times. And I and I believe that you would say that that would be true about meeting Shannon, too. How has Shannon been sure. part of the home sweet home Chris Christian story? Because we all know that uh, it's not just us, it's, it's the Lord, but there's also oftentimes a good person, good woman behind us. (laughs) Well, in the very beginning, uh, you know, she put up with so much because I was, Brown and I were working 20 hours a day. Mm. I mean, we had nine albums at one time we were doing. The studio was at the gold mine in our house in the basement. Our bedroom was right above the control room. And we had these huge old Yuri speakers that bam, bam, (laughs) bam, 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 kick drum, electric guitar. Yeah. And poor Shannon, she was up there trying to get some sleep, having to put up with this construction zone kind of sounds coming out of the studio. Yeah. And then when when the BJ BJ and Gloria lived with us there when we did his album, and she would uh, just be with BJ's wife, mm-hmm. entertain her, and just be a friend. And when Olivia Newton-John and her producer uh, came to town, uh, they asked me to set up their whole first session in the United States. And uh, I said, hey, why don't you stay with us? So Olivia and John Farrar, her producer, stayed with us. And John and I would be down in the studio working on songs. And Shannon would be upstairs just visiting with Olivia. Mm -hmm. And she was a great host. And she was very sweet. I was not sensitive at all. I mean, I, you know, I look back at, first of all, just working 25 hours a day was not great in itself. But she had to not only not, not see me. Even though we're in the same house, technically, and she had to put up with all this noise in the basement, and it could be praise the Lord or sell on or whatever. Mm-hmm. All she knew, she couldn't sleep. She <laughs> couldn't get some sleep with all this noise. So she was very sweet. And she did all the accounting and all the books, which are very minor in the beginning. We didn't have too much, but we had to pay musicians and, you know, different pay bills and things. And she did all that until we could afford to actually have someone to do mm-hmm. that. And then once once we could afford to have someone, then she, she stopped doing that. And she's turned out to be, uh, 
And she knew my grandmother, who was just the most godly woman that ever walked the mm. face of the earth. And I'm so glad because she's turned out to be just incredible grandmother. Mm. I mean, she's just our grandchildren. So she's just been a wonderful support. And again, in the right place at the right time, God had you there because he knew you needed Shannon to be your backup. Well, and you know, the music business is not known for marriages that last a long time. That's correct. That's correct. It's, it's not conducive. You're on the road all the time. There's, you know, it's just, she, she's just incredible. Well, Chris, throughout your career, you've been very vocal about your faith in Jesus and, and the fact that that's why you're doing what you're doing. You've had a lot of very cool experiences, but I would be interested in hearing how did you come to the point where you realized that this needed to be a call on your life from the Lord and and not just, I'm a Christian because, well, we I grew up in church and that's the churchy thing, didn't grandma prayed for me, you know? Where did, where did your faith in Christ become personal? Well, really, as far back as I can remember, like elementary school, I mean, my grandmother and my parents were so good to teach me that God answers prayer and God cares about you. They gave me a personal relationship when I was a young, young boy. And I would pray for blue ribbons in the science fair mm. and usually win, <laughs> you know, and I would pray that we'd win the uh, football championship. And we did yeah. <laughs> win the city championship. And, all. and I know looking back, that doesn't matter really in the big scheme mm -hmm. of things at all. But I just kept, I kept believing that God loved me and answers prayer. And I've always been grateful. I've been grateful in the morning. I've been grateful every night. I'm just a grateful person for God has done with, with me. And when I was writing this book, I was just going back over all the things that happened. And I said, oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, I'm humble. I'm, I'm grateful. And I just think the fact that he decided to, to take it. I didn't, or again, I didn't go to Nashville to do Christian music. Mm -hmm. I went to Nashville to do pop music. But I was a Christian, but I've never, I've even told somebody, I don't think I've ever been in Christian music. Mm. I've been making records and I have a faith and my beliefs come out in my songs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, everybody has to have a box that you put things yep. in, but I mean, I've had pop records. I have an instrumental record. I've had uh, Dallas Cowboy records and I have records that talk about faith like we have nothing much to give that's very new except the faith that comes from you. Mm -hmm. Today, I listened to that and I said, man, how did, where did that come from? That is a heavy line. Yeah. We have nothing to yeah. give God except the faith that he gives us to have faith in him. Yeah. And I, you know, I was too young back then. I, I wasn't thinking and wasn't heady and, you know, I was just, I don't. I think God has has just used me and and given me things and and had songs flow through me, and had and gave me an ear to, to even if I didn't write it like we are an offering mm -hmm. that White Lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just knew if some song could if it moved me, it was probably going to move a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. So, uh, really, my music career and my faith are to me are two different things. Mm -hmm. You know, I never wanted to be a music Christian, right? You know, that was not my goal. My goal was to be a Christian in, in my daily life, but I also wanted to make great records. I mean, that, that was my occupation. I think that's a very important distinction because I think if you're a plumber, you don't become a Christian plumber. You're a plumber. If you're a, you know, if you're a doctor, you're not a Christian doctor. You're a doctor. And so why is it that we put our music in this box to right. say, oh, this happens to be Christian music? Well, because 
it maybe it talks about Jesus and so forth, but I can be a doctor and talk about Jesus. I could be a, a traffic control guy and talk about Jesus. I've never felt like laying my faith on somebody and kind of telling them, you need to do this or you need to do that or whatever. And, and fortunately, I've been able to do it around the world through my songs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my songs can travel a lot further than I can travel. <laughs> right. And uh, I think I put out, I think very, some of my songs were about focus on the child, not spending enough time with your children. Mm-hmm. Don't blame it on the ones you love. Love them while we can. Yeah. Love your parents while they're still here. That's not necessarily a Christian theme, but it's a biblical theme. And I, I just feel like my belief in, in what God would want us to do comes out through the songs that I either find or that I write or wrote. I, I will admit, reading your book and hearing your story about all these fantastic experiences, it sounds like there's been a Midas touch on your life and everything's gone perfectly for you. I'm sure that there are points that you can point to that things didn't go well. How did your faith help you through one of those? You know, I spoke for a uh, MBA class at University of Texas in Arlington. And after I gave my talk about, in my book, I have about two pages of these are the lessons that I've learned. Like good things never last, bad things never last. Uh, The road to success is not a ladder. It's a jungle gym, (laughs) you know, things like that. Right. Well, so I gave, I gave my talk. At the end, I said, well, I got five minutes. Any questions? And the first question, well, how did you deal with rejection? Mm -hmm. And I I sat there and I was trying to think, okay, when have I been rejected? I could not think of one time in my life that I felt like I had been rejected. It just stumped me. And so I said, I've never been rejected. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And everybody just died laughing. They thought I was making making a joke. But you know what? Of course, I mean, the songs I played for people in the beginning, they thought were terrible. And I've been turned down a million times like everybody else. Right. But I never took it on as rejection. Mm. I'm not being rejected. I need to get better. I need to get better. I need to do something different. But I was I I never felt like I was ever rejected because I think rejection comes to you about personal. You're rejecting me as a person. Mm I just felt like if my song was not good enough, that was a piece of art and I needed to make it better, Mm -hmm. you know? So I never felt rejection. So I went through my whole life really not feeling rejection. Not everything went the way I wanted it to go. Not everybody liked what I did. A lot of people didn't like me, (laughs) you know, I mean, all those things like everybody else in the beginning, when I was making records and doing Christian records, one person said, well, you seem to be caring about how much money you make on this. So, well, yeah, it's a business. <laughs> it's my business. <laughs> this, I have a family, I have a, I have a house, and I have food I got to buy, and I do care that I do okay. Yeah. You know, I wasn't ever trying to be wealthy, but I just, and I thought that was a bizarre comment because you don't go to a plumber and say, just like you brought up the plumber, you don't say, well, you seem to always want to be paid for fixing the toilets, <laughs> right? Well. <laughs> You know, and I, I don't, but, but you're right. There is somehow there's a, in the Christian world, because I didn't, I didn't go into the Christian ministry. Mm-hmm. That's probably a big differentiation. Mm-hmm. I went in to make records that talked about faith and Jesus and, and biblical principles. Right. Uh, but I was not becoming a pastor. 
And so I think the public sometimes puts you in that place, expects you to be there. Mm-hmm. But I never considered myself worthy of really leading somebody. I had my beliefs, and if anyone asked me, I'd be glad to tell them. Well, Chris, I have thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you, and our time, unfortunately, has slipped so fast. We always end each of our podcast episodes. Every Saturday, I send out a newsletter to a bunch of folks who have committed to praying for different artists. And you talk about the importance of prayer and of your grandmother's prayer. How can we be praying for you in the weeks and months ahead? I want to understand what I can do for the remaining days that I have in front of me that'll serve the Lord. And, uh, you know, whether that's in music, TV, or some other way, I just, I just want to know because I've been so fortunate and so blessed. And I don't think I had any plan for what happened to me when I went to Nashville. So I don't think I should come up with what I should be doing now. I just want to lift it up to the Lord and said, hey, you know what I've done? You know what I can do? How do you want to use me this time? You did it last time. How about doing it one more time in whatever way would, would please you? In addition to all of the fun stories and the trip down memory lane with Chris Christian, there are two key thoughts that I want to make sure that we hold on to from our conversation today. First is the importance of living out our Christian faith every single day. Chris talked about never looking to make a, quote, career in Christian music, but the fact that he was a Christian was evident through his job. He wrote pop music that spoke about the important parts of his life, which just happened to revolve around his faith in Jesus. In the Bible, Paul states it this way in his letter to the church at Colossae. It says, quote, whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him through God the Father. Philippians 2.13 says it this way, God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. The takeaway in all this, your faith becomes evident in the work you do, whatever it is that God is leading you to do. The second point that really rings with me is the importance of prayer. Chris mentioned it several times that he thinks his career path was guided and influenced by his praying grandmother. In fact, his new book chronicles that amazing prayer life. But what I want us to take away is it's very important for us to cover people in our life with prayer. What is the story that's going to be told about your faithful prayers and how they affected the life of your family and friends? Hopefully this conversation helps ring home that fact that we need to be praying for our family and friends. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Chris Christian's life is just so full of amazing stories and experiences that it just couldn't fit all into one podcast. But don't worry, I've recorded more and there's more of our conversation over at patreon.com. Chris talks about how he handles rejection and how he used that to mold his future. He also had some pretty cool involvement in professional sports, and he talks about that over there in the aftercast as well. So again, if you'd like to hear the rest of my exchange with Chris Christian, head over to patreon.com slash ccmexchange. And remember that your patronage helps make sure that these episodes will continue into season two, which starts next week. So jump on over to patreon.com slash CCM exchange. And I look forward to seeing you there. 
As always, thanks for joining me for this conversation today. I am grateful that we get to spend this time together each week hearing stories of God's amazing faithfulness. As a regular listener to this podcast, would you mind taking a few minutes and rating it on your favorite podcast app? Reviews and ratings really help spread the word so that other folks can hear about these great conversations. And if you have comments or questions for me, please feel free to drop me a message on any of the social media platforms. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon by searching for at CCMExchange. Or you can always drop me an email on the website christianmusicarchive.com. I'm really looking forward to our time together next week when I have another great conversation with one of the musicians you'll find on the pages of the Christian Music Archive. So until then, remember this, God loves you. In fact, he's crazy about you. <laughs>